Hey, Real Talk listeners, welcome back. We are in our series really talking about, you know, challenging topics within the workforce and really how you can elevate and escalate some of your processes within your organization. Today, we're talking about, Michelle, DE&I, like it's a must for an organization. What a concept. I mean, I feel like we are talking about this so much. Why can't organizations just like literally flip the light switch on and it's done? Like, why is this so challenging? Well, I'm going to flash back to something Nikki said in one of our episodes, because you're right, Maria. I think you and I bring up diversity, equity, and inclusion. It feels like in some capacity every single month, um, even if it's not the entire episode, it's a topic that that pops up within the episode. And I think the reason that we have to keep bringing it up is what Nikki said, which is we're not even all speaking the same language. We're not on the same page right now. And we don't see everything from the same perspective. And you know what? New insights have to happen for people over and over again. And, and I have to tell you, for me, constantly happening, um, there's a there's a few people that I follow um, regularly because I know that they're going to educate me about something that I didn't know before. Maria, you and I were part of a, a podcast with Nikki, and one of the things that she said that just, it sort of floored me, and I was like, oh, yeah, and I couldn't even speak, was when she said, white history is mandatory for all races. Like, if you show up to a school in most first world countries, you've just learned about white history because it's what the curriculum is based on. But you probably didn't learn about another culture's history because it's not mandatory. And even if it was talked about, it was written from a white person's perspective. So not even accurate because we know that people tell stories based on their point of view. So it's not going to be accurate. So there's a few people that I tend to follow. Um, you know, I'm a fan of Emmanuel, say his last name. Emmanuel Acho. I love Mr. Acho, like I cannot tell you. And uh, he actually did, a, there was a really short clip that he had on social media that showed up in my feed a couple days ago. And I was like, wow, because I didn't think about it. He he talked about women in particular. He was talking about women. And he said, you know, if you look back to the suffrage movement, what you even saw during the suffrage movement was that white women started to separate themselves from women of color because we had a belief um, and I say we because I'm white, not because I'm old enough to have been a part of the suffrage movement. But we had a belief that we could elevate ourselves faster if we removed ourselves or separated ourselves from people of color. You know, and it's funny that actually it made me started thinking about a lot of places where people do that. And I can imagine in a lot of workforces um, or in a lot of individual businesses where people have done that, where they've just slowly separated themselves to try to be a part. Could people do it in school, right? People do it when they try to separate themselves from the person that's being bullied because you don't want to be associated with the friend that's getting bullied. You'd rather be associated with the bully because then you don't get picked on. And that's sort of what happened. So I think that's the reason we have to keep having these conversations 
is because we're all on different pages and we're all, I hate the phrase woke because I, I don't know. Oh my God, I hate that phrase. But we all become aware of the part we play in racism and in privilege and in holding people back at different times is how we become aware of that. Yeah, I think, you know, what's challenging for organizations is it's great to put in like ERGs or ARGs or affinity groups, whatever you want to call them. Um, but uh, they don't know how to have uncomfortable conversations like Emmanuel mentions, right? It's or take a stance, because if you take a stance on one, then you feel like you're separating your population. Like, um, for example, like uh, a CEO mentioned, well, I do want to say Black Lives Matter because I truly feel that. But I also don't, as a CEO, want to make the population that doesn't agree with that statement and feels like this is annoying. All lives matter or blue lives matter. He doesn't want to piss off that population and have them exit the organization and have attrition there. So it's like it becomes an uncomfortable stance or conversation or or whatever it is that you're stating as an executive an organization because you're trying not to disrupt people's emotions or feelings instead of educating or having the uncomfortable conversation or making that stance and describing or communicating your purpose for it. So I think that's the challenge companies are having. Like another company was challenged with, well, we don't want to donate to this organization, BLM.org, because it doesn't completely align with all of our values, even though our ERG wants to donate to that specific organization and has chosen that organization. So I think it's just getting too convoluted in companies not trying to make, you know, like make a stance and draw that line to then make the other half unhappy. It's kind of like, you know, vaccinations. Yeah, it's a political, you know, discussion. One half is like, yeah, go vaccinations. The other one is like, no, and you're trying not to piss people off one way or another. I think that's where the DEI challenges are within an organization because you do have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yes. So specifically, the uncomfortable conversations part. I've never, so in all of the videos that I've seen with Manuel, I've never, he has never come across. So I, anyway, I'm trying to dig into that idea of uncomfortable conversations. And you see, I'm a little uncomfortable right now because I'm trying to figure out how to best explain it. The stuff he says or asks, it's never uncomfortable. Like it, he actually interviews people amazingly. I'm just, following along with it, it's uncomfortable inside you as a business leader who is starting to realize the institution you have benefited from. The uncomfort truly is inside you when you're like, oh shit, yeah. And you're going to have to get over it. That's, look, I'm telling you, Every time I read something, I'm like, oh, shit, just a little bit more every day. But if you don't educate yourself, so I'm going to speak, I'm going to speak straight out to the white people in the world right now. 
that listen to our podcast. You ready? If you don't start educating yourself, we're never going to stop talking about this. More than anything, I'd rather talk about the pandemic for the next five years <laughs> than keep talking about diversity, equity, inclusion. I want us to get to a point where humans are treated like humans because of what makes them special. And we don't have to have diversity, equity, inclusion officers because it's done automatically. That's the dream world I would like to live in. Right now, it is completely a dream world. But I can't get to that place until I start to peel back the layers of my bias that will pop up when those situations happen. Maria, you and I talked about the ladder of inference the other day. And the idea, if you've ever heard of the ladder of inference, guys, go Google it. You'll learn some really good stuff. But it's the fact that through your life, you were you were sort of told stuff and you didn't necessarily believe it, but then something added to it. So um, I'm going to give you a bias about Southern people. Southern people talk slow. They have the long this long draw. You guys hear my draw. You know we have it. I don't talk slow, but most of us do. Our words are slower. So we hear that, and then we watch a movie, not we Southerners, the rest of the world. You hear that, then you watch a movie that suggests that Southerners are slow, as in not smart. And now you've started to think, well, they're not as smart as people in other parts of the world. And then you see a stat like um, South Carolina actually has a horrible education system way to go, the government of South Carolina and the parents for putting up with it. And so you see that stat where the education's at the bottom and then it starts to reinforce that story that you were told. This is the way it happens, guys. And then you meet someone that has a Southern draw and your mind immediately in less than a second, doesn't even take, it takes milliseconds for you to recognize the draw apply it to everything that you've heard, probably didn't finish high school, look how many dropouts they are, and you keep climbing up that ladder, and now all of a sudden the person that you're looking at is dumb. That's the way it happens, and that's the way it happens. All of it happens. And until you start to, as people who have been in a position of the minority class, white, in this country, until you start to peel back all of those layers and all of those biases and all of those stories that you've been told your whole life, you're not going to change the way you approach people. So you've got to look at, you've got to listen. Maria, but I'm going to give this to you, but I know we're going to get a comment about this. So I want to bring it up because interestingly enough, it was an interview with Emmanuel and Chelsea Handler where I learned this one. And I was like, that is a brilliant way to explain it. So for all of the white people out there that say, I'm not rich, I am not privileged. Guess what? I was not rich either. In fact, there were times in my life growing up where my dad will tell you he wasn't sure how he was going to feed his wife or his three children. Um, We were that poor. We ate spam because we had to, not because we liked the taste. Okay, so Chelsea explains it really well without using a ton of profanity about what white privilege really means. And when she sort of woke up to an awareness of white 
privilege and what it was. And for her, it was really a realization that when a police officer pulls her over for speeding, she has zero fear. Like she goes over, she reaches into the dash, pulls out her pocket card. She's like moving around the front seat, getting all of her stuff. And I thought about it. I did too. Every time I've ever been pulled over to a tick for a ticket, I always go in my pockets in my, my car places to have everything together so that when they get to the window, I can just give it to them. Right. But if I am a, uh, if I'm a black man and I do that, things don't go well for me. And so privilege isn't about having money or growing up wealthy. It's more times than not. It's about the intangible benefits that you receive in culture from being the minority population. It's more the intangible than it is tangible. Yeah, I think there's just a number of things, right, that set individuals apart from each other. It's also where you're located. So you take a look, for example, at Detroit. Detroit is predominantly a black community and or I would say minorities. There's, you know, there's Mexican towns in Detroit and things like that, too. So I would say there's a ton of minorities there, mainly. And Dan Gilbert has done a tremendous job of expanding out Detroit, building it up you know, adding uh, increased housing and and increased jobs and things like that, which is fantastic um, to see for, you know, things to get evolved. But there are parts of Detroit. I was watching the news at some point in my life. And in Detroit, they never had an organic fruit market. Like they had to drive miles and miles away to actually have the opportunity to get organic food if they wanted to. Or, or really great produce. So they were like super stoked or excited when there was an actual a Whole Foods that was just put in there, a Whole Foods market and things like that, because that they, as far as the city of Detroit, were never entitled to have something like that offered. And Whole Foods, for example, I mean, I can organizations are challenged with putting things in places, but I also feel like it could be that they're putting in their own biases and stereotypes like, oh, if we go in Detroit, it's a high crime capital. Maybe we'll get a lot of theft, blah, blah, blah. But then you start tying that to what is the majority of the population there. So what are you trying to say about your stance on not putting something in a location, right? Instead of giving the people there the opportunity to be entitled to some of those things that other communities are privileged to have. So You know, there are circumstances that continue to challenge individuals and communities and people still fight through that, you know, like started from the bottom. Now we're here. Like, seriously, like I was challenged with, you know, having a teacher that didn't have chalkboard and they were literally writing things on a cardboard, you know, with a marker um, to like show the children and things like that. Like that's happening in communities that is happening in communities. They are underfunded. And it's a challenge. It is a true. There's there are obstacles and barriers that have been put in place that people cannot get out of. And yes, it happens in non-minority communities as well. But that's that's just a challenging fact of it. Like you need to spend a day in a life or have your white kids go to an underprivileged school to figure out what the hell that means and, until you're going to actually want to make change and movement against it. I mean, that's just the sad fact and truth of 
what's going on in the U.S. when you take a look at it. We're still evolving from that, unfortunately. And it's sad when someone gets excited that there's like a Whole Foods finally like within reasonable driving distance, like less than an hour from them. Like it's it's sad that you can't get organic produce and entitled to the same things that other communities are getting. As businesses, if you don't start actively addressing this. Um, And 2020 was a great example of this. If you have a workforce that is part of a minority group in the United States of America, you know what, I'm going to take it a step further to say, if you have a workforce, you have Black people in your workforce and you and your leaders We're not trained to have great conversations with them through 2020. You did your company a disservice. You may not have realized it at the time, but now that to Maria's point in our last podcast, now that we are now looking at an employee, it is an employee's market. They get to pick and choose. And the thing is, they get to pick and choose at the blue collar level. I'm back. They get to choose at the blue collar level and the white collar level. And that small step of I'm not going to take a stance on this because I don't want to make people who believe in blue lives matter bad, you made a stance. And so when people choose not to come back to you, again, look at yourself. Um, You've heard some of our guests in previous podcasts say that if you want to figure this out in your organization, um, to Maria's point just a minute ago, you've got to start bringing someone in who's prepared to have uncomfortable conversations, who's prepared to challenge folks when they say the wrong thing. And I'll give you a great example. Uh, We brought in an organization, um, or I was a part of a meeting with a really great organization, Corn Ferry. And they were leading a difficult conversation with um, a customer-facing business. And they took real complaints from that business's customer. And they presented them in table groups. And they had tables brainstorm what went wrong, why we think it went wrong, and how do we teach people not to do it in the future? And they had a bunch of us at the groups, the smaller groups, to help facilitate the conversation. Our table, the scenario was a group of 24 people came in after church for lunch. Those 24 people were Black And the restaurant that they came to lunch in does not normally, well, never reserves, but doesn't have table sittings for that many people. So literally what they have to do is pull a whole bunch of other tables together. Well, (laughs) instead of talking to someone like they understand what you're saying, the person says, oh, we can't help people like you. Exactly. Maria just made a face like, are you freaking kidding me? They actually use the words people like you. So I'm going to leave that long. You guys, just with that alone, you know what the mistake was. But I want to talk about the table group that was discussing the mistake. The immediate response 
was, well, that's not what they meant. What they meant was a big group of people. And it literally took me as a facilitator challenging them to get past that hangup to say intent is not what we're talking about here. Perception is what we're talking about. And the same thing, we talk about this with leaders as well. When you give an order, it doesn't matter if your intent is good. It matters how your employee received it. When you say something like you people, it doesn't matter what you meant by it. It matters how the receiver received it. And it literally, it took us 15 minutes just to get back past the excuses of that's not what I meant. I can't tell you what that person meant because I'm not that person. As far as I know, they really could have meant I don't want all of you Black people in my restaurant. I don't know what they meant. I don't know because it wasn't them. What I do know is just in those four words, it's exactly what I assumed they meant. So you can't just say someone in your organization, like rando leader number five, lead a difficult conversation because if they're not prepared to do that, they're not going to challenge people to think further or look deeper into what they need to do. Yeah, which goes back to our last podcast where we talk about giving, equipping your employees with the right tools to be successful. And if you're in customer service and you haven't been equipped with great communication tools to help you, um, like role-playing when situations like you have a party of 15 that comes in, you know, and you can't, you know, satisfy them. Go ahead. Now go like, let's role play this out. Like, how do you, what would you say? How would you handle it? Like, what are some things you could do? Not necessarily just communication piece, but like how you actually successfully manage and navigate through some of the day-to-day challenges. I think you need to equip your team members with success, with the tools, you know, for success with tools for their role and their responsibility. I also think Michelle, and I think Nikki mentioned this and, and go back to our podcast on February 2nd, Nikki Lerner, um, phenomenal, very well-spoken, um, fantastic, fantastic speaker for us and guest. Um, but I think it's critical for each and every, you need to start top-down leadership. I think if you don't have someone come into your organization and start talking to your CEO and then going down from there and getting the buy-in, you're going to continue finding challenges in your organization. Um, and so that's why you saw over the last year, and I, I think it's dwindled down a bit, but there's still, you know, roles out there. But a lot of organizations decided to hire a chief, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion officer because I think they found that that was a critical component. What I really liked about us working at FedEx, Michelle, was we had that role already. Um, and, you know, I partnered with them um, on initiatives. And I, I think that's critical when you take a look at your talent and, you know, how you're recruiting efforts, your branding, your career page, all of that. You know, FedEx was at the forefront of that. They weren't, you know, reactive and trying to hire a DEI officer, you know, throughout the pandemic. Um, but you saw a lot of organizations like, holy crap, let's be reactionary to this. And you don't, you have to think ahead with what roles you need. Um, And even if it's not an official role per se, it's got to be somebody who's educated about it. Um, A lot of individuals you assume who are in human resources are educated about it. They may not have the right tools um, 
or equipment, you know, to, to be set up for success for that. You can't just assume someone's in HR and they're successful at DEI. That's that doesn't always happen. Sometimes HR needs to be equipped with the right tools for DEI. Like you need someone to come in and train your recruiters on how to really diversify the workforce and your leaders on how to be open to diversifying the workforce, not being as biased or I it, it's tough because people are going to be biased. Right. And stereotypes happen. But I think understanding and identifying what your biases are so you can look past those are also the most critical component. So I think that's kind of if I had to give some feedback for individuals listening, that's what you need to do first. I love that you said that. It's so funny because I was going to say the same thing. I was going to say on behalf of all of my colleagues that are in DE&I, it's a completely... There's a lot you have to think about. I mean, even even going to how do I get people on the same page? And maybe you do start by having different conversations with different groups um, because you got to get this group up to this person's page before we can bring them together and have a great conversation. There are people that are brilliantly trained and qualified in this area, um, being a minority or being in HR doesn't make someone truly qualified to be your DEI change agent. So look for someone who is or someone to come in and consult. Also, stop asking DEI people or minorities, <laughs> stop asking them to donate their time for free <laughs> for you to get your movement, your business. DEI is. Uh, the future of business if you want to be successful. Um, so you need to know as a leader and as a business owner when it's time to make an investment. And this is one of those places where you need to figure out how to invest. And if your communications department is giving you advice that you need to remain silent, you need to find different communications people uh, because they are definitely not looking out for the company's best interest long-term. So that would be our advice. There are definitely some places in D&I, Marie, I know that you um, have done a lot of training and education in the D&I world. There are places at Real Talent that we can definitely step in and help you. There are also some incredible people that we have partnered with that if we find when we discuss your situation, that we are not the best fit, um, we'll make sure we get you to someone who is incredible and can help you push this initiative where it needs to be in your company. Absolutely. So until next time, listeners, tune in. Next episode, we are talking about the employee experience. Take care. Take care.